Welcome to Inspiring Change from Ocali, our forum of stories and connections from our ongoing work of inspiring change and promoting access for people with disabilities. I'm Simon Buer. Okay, so I grew up on uh, on Alex Place, which is a dead-end street in central New Jersey. And uh, I still live on Alex Place. Uh, a few years back, I bought the biggest house and renovated it, and that's home. In a recent post on his Facebook page, Ladera Horn wrote, The cucumber patch in our yard is really producing. There's a photo of a small mound of freshly picked cucumbers resting in the grass. There's another one of a cucumber actually growing through one of the holes in the chicken wire fence that surrounds the garden. And a third photo of Laderic himself, big electric smile, holding a half dozen cucumbers. He's wearing a black t-shirt with slim, elegant, multicolored lettering. It reads, everyone belongs. As a poet, speaker, and advocate, growth and belonging are two pervasive threads in Ladericorn's work. He's a champion of hope and opportunities for people with disabilities, a mentor for adults and students alike, and a talented word artist. He makes words dance. When I was a kid, there was a tradition of my parents playing records. So um, this is a poem which captures a lot of what I heard growing up as a kid, and it's called Alex Place Soundtrack. Mama gave me P-Funk, George Clint, 45 spinning like a windmill. You'll kill yourself chasing after breakbeats, break down, turn up the volume when the Godfather screaming like that. Now we going uptown, last poet, Congo, lyrics, use a gas man, Jones be falling when I hear it, some party and BS, but don't be scared when the revolution hits you like that, that, mm-hmm, now what? Papa playing James T, Simon, Garfunk, Era with the Hotel, California, rockin' plus the doo-wop. Diddy, diddy, dum, diddy, do, have my whole house singing like that. Yeah, man. This is just a soundtrack, childhood, young boy moving with the least stitch music. Sewn in my jeans, had a BMX, jump right with the rhythm. I was F-R-E-S-H, like them girls turning rope on my block, singing, run and tell your mama about that. Yeah. It was like that. <laughs> I, I, at the end of that poem, I spell out the word fresh. And fresh is significant because that is the first word I learned to spell on my own. Oh, wow. Um, and the reason was is because there was a song on the radio when I was a kid. And the hook was the MC spelling out the word fresh. So I had the, the mnemonic. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Yeah. I could latch on to. That's awesome. Great. Um, <laughs> Callie's Jen Bavery and Sean Henry sat down with Ladera Corn to talk, share, and laugh about a wide range of topics and issues, including reflections on his own educational experiences, the importance of having a positive vision of one's life, what it takes to build more inclusive communities, and the need to recognize and utilize the strengths and assets that we all have. Jen opened the conversation by first asking Lederick about the book he co-authored with Margot Izzo, entitled Empowering Students with Hidden Disabilities, A Path to Pride and Success.
Can you explain a little bit more about how that book came to be and what it means to empower students? Yeah, so um, Margo and I, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Yeah. Being on this podcast. Um, Margo and I met back in 2010, and she's a project director. It runs a number of grants out of uh, Ohio State University's Nassau Unger Center. And I was uh, asked to be a keynote speaker at a project director's meeting in, New, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. This was back in 2010. And uh, yeah, we, we met each other at that event and she brought me to Ohio State and I um, you know, worked a little bit with her. And then over the time, after going back and forth, um, we became friends and started talking about wanting to make a book together. Margot is a, a person with uh, ADHD and I have a learning disability. And so the book is us really looking at what we know to be true around best, best practices around transition improving transition outcomes of folks with disabilities. Um, but it's also uh, seen through uh, the, the lens of two people who've lived the experience of having a disability. And so I think the, the book is unique in that regard because we, we don't have enough people with disabilities sort of informing the work uh, of right. this field. So uh, yeah, that's, that's how Margo and I got together. And I think to empower students is, you know, it sort of unfolds throughout the chapters of the book, but a lot of it has to do with uh, the elements of self-advocacy, you know, that self-awareness, you know, and um, one of the things we really push in the book is that it's really key that our young people have a community, you know, that they realize yeah. that they're part of a long lineage of human beings who have had different kind of differences um, and have contributed great things and um, and that they connect with each other now in, in, a, in a really uh, sort of form a fellowship and not just kind of being in the same room together, but having community, learning from each other, um, being able to laugh and, sh you know, share strategies and, right. and all those sort of things. Yeah. So it, it's wonderful that you mentioned community um, because I know that that's part of where Ocali is focused too and trying to make sure everyone knows that we are all part of this community and we all make a difference in this community. Can you share a little bit more about what your community was like growing up? Oh, well, yeah. So, um, I was first diagnosed with having a learning disability when I was nine years old and first placed in a resource room and then a self-contained special ed classroom for a number of years. And there was sort of a mix of students with disabilities in that room. Uh, our teacher was Miss Yates, Miss Priscilla Yates. She had a teacher's aide named Miss Norsha, who were just really great human beings. It's impressive that you remember the names. That's great. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's for, you know, all the educators and just all the people out here. You know, when you do good things, people remember. You do bad things, people remember too. True. Right? True. And, and I, I've said on a number of occasions on stage that, that self-contained classroom was not an ideal setting. It was not inclusive at all. You know, we were at the end of the hall. I felt very segregated. <clears throat> uh, I felt very segregated, but I was also very clear that Ms. Yates and Ms. Norsha loved each and every student in that room. And um, later on in life, when I got to be a teenager, I was dealing with real mental health challenges, depression, anxiety, um, different things along those lines. And I was fortunate to, to be able to graduate from high school and, and do as well as I have. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of that time kind of growing up, there was a lot of shame. There was a lot of embarrassment. And I think what helped me to get through it was, uh, you know, being able to look back at experiences like that love and compassion and just a true belief that educators like Ms. Yates gave to all of us. Mm -hmm. um, 
as well as, you know, having remarkable parents. I think I, I won the parent lottery and they were very supportive throughout my life. But Derek, you, you mentioned the word love. My wife, I mention this a lot. She's a special educator today, Yeah, you know, and when she comes home and she might be frustrated and, you know, just a little you know, tired and things like that. And not sure she's getting through to the students or, or frustrated that a, you know, another teacher may not understand them and she'll say, you know, what do you think I should do? And instead of talking about strategy or getting into that, I just say, just keep on loving them. Keep loving them. Yeah. Just keep loving them. They need to know that yeah. you do love them and they, you believe in them, right? And don't let that belief go away. We talk a lot about strategy, talk a lot about these, these interventions, but sometimes we just forget that the human element is so critical to to just life and success. Yeah. It's Can a, you speak it, to that? Yeah, it's, you know, it's sort of a cliche, but it's a powerful <clears throat> cliche that, you know, you can't get the minds if you don't have the hearts first. And um, I, I firmly believe in that. And I think it's, you know, it's one of the things that our society is not doing a great job of is just really encouraging us, even with all the connectivity, encouraging us to have really deep relationships with each other. And, um, you know, I think if you're in education, that that's where you need to start. You have to have that that caring about, about, um, about the students who are, you know, who you're, who you're working with. And I also think it just, our teachers need a lot of love too. You know, when, when I, mm -hmm. when I think about, you know, what inclusion is and when inclusion works, works well, you know, inclusion is not about just everybody being in the same room together. But, um, one of the key ways that I can kind of use a marker, whether a school is doing inclusion well, is if whether they provide time for collaboration for the teachers, professional development for them to, have spaces where they can learn from each other, build those connections, support each other. Because um, it's remarkable that, you know, so many of our students will perform poorly for one teacher and then exceptionally for another, right? right? And so for educators being able to learn from each other, right? And, and I think of that, um, particularly when you can build in a professional environment that allows for that time as an expression of love, um, yeah, because, you know, the reality is that a lot of our educators are coming out of their teacher preparation programs, not ready to be able to really perform to their best in an inclusive setting. So we, we need more professional development and we need more time for collaboration. Um, but, yeah, the love piece is, is really important. Um, you know, it's also important that all of us just, you know, think about that self-care piece, too. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, um, <laughs> you know, it can be very easy to get burnt out if you've got, you know, 30 people in front of you on a daily basis who you are caring for. Um, so it's one of the pieces of advice that I give to educators all the time and, and, and families is, you know, the kids are great, but take care of yourself right. first. You know, you have to make sure you're strong because then you, 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 that's the only way you can be strong for everybody else. I'm glad you mentioned exactly. that. That's, we've been talking a lot about it. Okay, great. You mm -hmm. know, and, and actually we were just talking about the, right now, the, the morale being right. a little lower right? And the teachers and they were feeling, we were just, and we could feel this almost national vibe. And we're just saying, we just need to talk about a message of hope. Yeah. And that they're doing great things. Yeah. And there is change, mm -hmm. right? And that there is a community. And that community is part of what's being here. And so, know you're not alone. Take care of yourself. And, but also, know, don't lose hope. Because right. if you're losing hope and your ability to be effective, it, it, that'll translate to the kids and they'll lose hope, right? Yeah. And so, that community piece is so critical to make sure that we we can just because, you know, there's a narrative of negativity around public education sometimes. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think that narrative is always true. I think mm. there's some really wonderful things happening. And we have to kind of fight through what's been 
portrayed at times. Yeah, yeah. I I I'm a big fan of public ed. The the narrative and I think the the there is this sort of national sentiment. I would actually expand expand that like globally um of just sort of uh, pessimism and um you know and people aren't satisfied. And I I think it's because we are kind of in a in a point of multiple sort of paradigm shifting, right? And yes. so it's hard to kind of know where the stable ground is. And so that's just, you know, that's natural. It's yes. kind of mm-hmm. how things go. And, yes. and that, that whole piece is important. Like we all have to, uh, you have to have a vision for where we're going. Right. And um, hard work can only be sustained with a powerful vision. Right. That's and right. So, that's and right. So, yeah. So whether it be a, a young person with a disability working in their schools, you know, maybe struggling with different, different issues. Like if they can have a positive vision for what their life can look like, you know, and a lot of that comes from community. It comes from mentors. It comes from role models. Um, and I, and also the, the folks who are doing the hard work in our schools, particularly around inclusion, they have to have a vision of what those schools look like. You know, um, a lot of the fights that I'm a part of around creating more inclusive schools, through different nonprofits and what have you, I think so much of it just kind of comes down to some of its momentum, like educational momentum. People are just like used to doing the same thing over and over again, you know, and, it, and even like separate segregated schools for kids with, you know, or programs or what have you. That can sound and seem very rational if you kind of look at it from the past to where we are now. But if you have a, a, a beautiful future, you know, an idea, a vision for what a school can be beyond just that, um, I think people will they'll fight very hard. Right. But they oftentimes have to see it. You know, and it's one of the things we were hoping to do with the book. And I hope to do as a as a speaker is to give people a vision for what is for what is possible for our schools and for the lives of people with disabilities. You share a little bit about giving the vision to students. Yeah. Um, What are some examples of things that you've shared to kind of help in that that being that self-advocate and helping students become self-advocates. The first thing that kind of comes to mind is, is, is the mentoring piece. I'm on the board of a nonprofit organization called Eye to Eye, and we take college students and high school kids who have learning disabilities and ADHD, and they mentor middle school kids who have similar wow. disabilities. So we have chapters all over the U.S. Because um, when I think about my life, like I got classified, I was in the third grade, you know, I go into the self-contained class. Between third and fourth grade, I started giving up and wasn't really conscious that I was giving up. But everything around me was communicating to me, whether it was that class at the end of the hall, not being able to go out and, and, and engage with the rest of the school body. I mean, there's a lot of sort of communication and, and also just like a larger cultural narrative around special ed that was not positive. Right. Like I noticed that on your signs, you crossed out the special. Mm-hmm. All right. I love that. Right. You know, like, and that's the vision too, yeah. right? Like, this, yeah. it doesn't have to be special. This is the way we're supposed to treat everybody, right? That's right. Um, but yeah, when I grew up, there were like very few positive examples of people who were going through or passing through special ed. The, the best one, though, was the rapper special ed, who was like bold enough to, to call his name special ed. And he's got that <laughs> whole rhyme, like, I've got it made, you know, and it was just all these incredible things that he did. Um, but, yeah, there were very there were very few examples, you know, apart from him. Um, yeah. So when I was younger, I, I know that I was I was losing that hope. And what would have made a difference in my life would have been if I could have met someone who was a little bit older, um, you know. When you're, when you're in elementary school, when you're in middle school, a high school student, they all look like rock stars. 
So tell us a little bit more about how you having that, what it would have been like to have had that mentor and how you were trying to encourage that now. Yeah. So, so, um, I think for me, if, if I could have had someone who was a high school student or a college student, um, who number one, just would have been like, Hey, you've got an incredible future ahead of you. I think that would have made a huge difference in my life, but particularly if they could say, I have a disability similar to yours, you know, like, yeah, you know, school isn't great, but it wasn't great for me, but look at where I am right now. Um, and as I got closer to transition, as I got older and older and older and closer to, to graduating from high school, I think the depression and the anxiety was increased because I didn't have an example of what life was going to be like for me. I graduated from high school in 1996. Transition, we, I mean, we just really started talking about and setting up systems to support transition at that time. So it was kind of just like luck that I, I ended up at this really great disability support program when I was in college. Um, but again, I think it's part of that community power, right? You know, like it's one of the aspects of disability culture, which makes it um, sort of unique is that, you know, we, we pass this culture, not oftentimes from parent to child, but from person with a disability to a person with a disability. This concept or this thought around when you talk, I just think about students feeling that they're enough, mm -hmm. you know, and that not being taken and just holding so that they say, you know, I'm enough. I have something to contribute. Yeah. Can you kind of speak to that? And as you were talking about your mentorship, you know, and when you see that light bulb go off, what it means for the rest of your life. Yeah. I mean, it's, it can be, I think many of us tend to focus on the negative, right? And the reality of being diagnosed with a disability, like you don't do that because you did something right, right? It's like you didn't meet someone's metric or you right. know, stage of development. And so unfortunately, a lot of the conversation tends to be about what, what, what our young people can't do, what yes. they're not good at. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's important that we all are conscious of our impairments or our deficits or, or what have you. Um, but no one can face the, land, the challenges in their life by just knowing what they can't do. You have to know what your strengths are. And we all have strengths. We all have assets. Um, and, you know, and 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 that is enough. That's you know? right. That is enough. Yeah. So like you said, from that strengths based side of it. Right. Just getting the. the the student to really believe like we, we see that side yeah. on the other side of that. Can you speak to the side of, you know, uh, I know with students of, of saying embrace this, right? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. there's some real beauty in what's happening because your thinking is so different. Yeah. And we want, we, we, you know, we want to pull that out of you. Yeah. I know we're here. This is, this is hard. This yeah. is going to be a little harder for you to get through. Right. We're going to work, work through it. But over here, we want to, we want to, you know, develop this and, and see it blossom. Yeah. The, the, um, one of the more profound things we can do to help any self-advocate is to, to give them that awareness of all aspects of who they are. Right. I think the more powerful thing that we can do for any, anybody is just to help them to be able to see, see their strengths. And I think the other piece of that is, um, making sure that we give our young people the the tools that they need to, to leverage their strengths. Um, because just saying mm -hmm. you're great and you're talented and, mm -hmm. and what have you is not enough. We actually need to give them the leverage, right. To be able to put that talent into action out in the world. So speaking of talent, how or when did you discover your passion for poetry? Well, I think the, um, the passion had always been there even when I was a little kid, right. So I've always enjoyed language 
And uh, when I was a kid, I used to walk around with a recorder and just like record dialogue off TV or lyrics to songs that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I remember um, even like wanting to learn the definition of DNA and um, being able to look it up in the dictionary, but not being able to read the definition. And so mm. having my mother read it into this recorder so that I could learn it by memory is like my first natural sort of stumbling onto the power of audio books or audio recordings, right? Um, but I've always loved language. And when I was a kid, my, my mother used to play for me the, the last poets who were a revolutionary um, um, poetry group out of Harlem in the 60s. And she had one of the original records and guys like Gil Scott Hannon. And this is also when I was a kid, it was sort of the time where hip hop was being born. So this uh, renewed push of spoken word out into the world. Um, but I was, you know, I was someone who didn't learn the alphabet until I was in the, until I was probably 10 years old. Um, so I was afraid of spelling. I was afraid of writing. And so I, I didn't really attempt to write until I get to college. And I'm a part of this support program. And my counselor says, stop worrying about the spelling and just write. And I, I literally be, just began waking up in the middle of the night, just writing poetry. It was, it was like the excuse that I needed to be able to express something that had always been there. Um, but I was held captive by like the tyranny of spelling. But once that was lifted, the first poem started going. So I, I started writing when I was in college and I was an open mic poet. Um, and I used to run a number of open mics and, uh, that's, that's kind of how it started. Yeah. And I was in my work kind of when I, when I found poetry was also a time when I was working just through a lot of identity issues around what it meant to be an African-American, um, and also to be a person with a disability. And so, um, my work is sort of a fusion of me sort of exploring those two identities. You're listening to Inspiring Change from Ocali, our forum of stories and connections from our ongoing work of inspiring change and promoting access for people with disabilities. I'm Simon Buer. That was a conversation between my colleagues, Jen Bavery and Sean Henry, and poet, speaker, and advocate, Ladera Korn. If you don't know, Sean is Ocali's executive director. And Jen is program director of the Family and Community Outreach Center at Ocali. She also hosts our sister podcast, From My Perspective. You can find From My Perspective at ocali.org slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Early on in the interview, Lederick mentioned some of his personal mental health struggles. If you or someone you know is dealing with mental health issues, depression, or anxiety, please seek professional help or counseling. The National Helpline from SAMHSA is a good place to start. You can reach them at 1-800-662-4357. Also, if you live in Ohio, you can contact the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services to get connected with supports and services in your area. You can reach them at 1-877-275-6364. You can learn more about Lederic Horn at his website, lederic.com. How cool is that to have your first name as your website URL? That's pretty cool. And I think, yeah, I'm calling the shots here. We have time for one more poem. 
Back when we were celebrating the 35th anniversary of the Individuals with Disability Education Act, the, um, the feds asked me to narrate a, a short documentary film about the history of inclusion in the U.S. And so if you go on YouTube or on my Facebook and you search um, celebrating 35 years of, uh, of idea, um, you'll see that film, which has been viewed by I don't know, tens of thousands of people. Um, and at the end of it, I, I do this poem, um, which, is, uh, which is an American idea. It's an American idea. Today's child will be tomorrow's citizen. Education shapes our expression of liberty and separate, well, that has never been equal. We are the students of a new day. Brave scholars who claim desk and classroom, book and school until the self-evident truths expressed through our victories gave this nation's first declaration renewed life. Each mind is beautiful. Strength has many forms and we are all able. That was poet, speaker, and advocate Lederic Horn. Thanks again for listening to Inspiring Change, because the need for change is everywhere, and inspiration can come from anywhere. I'm Simon Buer. See you soon. <laughs>